Okay, we are in 1 Peter, and we're continuing our study through 1 Peter, but we are also looking at a portion of Peter's life as well in the book of Acts. So, this is 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And now Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heavens by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered that man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household." As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just on us at the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. How should we live now as a people of faith in a secular society? How should we live? That has become the prevailing question of our age. As we become a moral minority in our country, as American Christians, we face a lot of uncertainty, don't we? Questions that we face about truth, about ethics and morals, about politics, about sexuality, about marriage, even about technology. And as modern-day Christians, we are finding ourselves more and more on the wrong side of the fence socially, that we are forced to take the unpopular position 
And we are accused of being outdated, archaic, antiquated, even bigoted, irrelevant. And so how should we respond? As a church, how do we respond when we live in a culture where we face such hostility and sometimes even hatred? For some, the solution lies not in the future of the church, but it actually lies in our past. That the the way forward for the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century is actually to go back, to go back to the early church, to go back to the first century. One pastor put it this way almost 60 years ago, and I want you to listen to this. This is profound. He said, there was a time when the church was very powerful. The time when early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, he said, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion, but it was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God, he said, the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. And if today's church loses its authenticity, it will forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as a relevant social club in the 20th century. What have we become? Because if you change that to the 21st century, those words are just as true today as they were 60 years ago. What is he saying? Well, he's saying that the church has never, the church has never been more powerful than when it suffered well. I wonder, do you know who wrote those profound words almost 60 years ago? He wrote them in the margins of little scraps of pieces of paper. And then he finished it when he borrowed his lawyer's legal pad. He was in jail in Birmingham, Alabama. His name was Martin Luther King. I want you to consider the kind of hatred and hostility that Martin Luther King faced when he wrote those words. When you argued that we should not respond to hatred with hatred, but we should respond with sacrifice and love. Love, King said, is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Love, he said, transforms with redemptive power. Now in the face of racism and hatred and hostility, how could King say it? How could he say we must respond with love and not hate? How could he say we must endure this hostility sacrificially? How could he call for love like that? Only because he knew that love all too well himself. He knew the love of God for him. And 60 years later, we need that legacy now perhaps more than ever. Not only in terms of racial reconciliation in our country, but as a church, As the church of Jesus Christ, as we face an increasing hostile world, we need to recapture the spirit of the early church, a spirit of sacrifice and a spirit of holy love. That we would love others and love one another 
and the same way that God loves us. And this morning we are continuing our series through 1 Peter and really we're continuing our theme from last week, the theme of holiness. Last week we defined holiness in this way, it's not moralism, it's not rebellion, it's something completely different. It is bearing the image of God. And this morning Peter is giving us a practical example of what that kind of holiness looks like. And his example is love. To bear the image of God in love. And he says this really just three ways. We're going to look at these three commands that he gives us in his letter. Really, exactly how he wrote them, okay? So the first thing he says is this, that first, we must love from a pure heart. Second, he's going to say that we must love because we've been born again. And third, he's going to say, well, we need to love through the living and abiding word of God. But what we're going to see this morning is this wasn't just part of his letter, But this was true to Peter's life, and he learned it the hard way. Because when God called Peter to go to a Gentile, an enemy, an outcast named Cornelius, Peter learned, and we're all going to learn, just how radical the love of God really is. That of all virtues, it is love that is the most radical and the most transformative form of holiness. The first call to love that Peter gives us is this, that we must love from a pure heart. Look at verse 22 in his letter, chapter 1. He says this, Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, I recognize this morning that when I say love, there's probably about as many definitions of love in this sanctuary as there are people. And so we, we, we got to first start with, well, what does love actually mean? Because all of us, well, we, we define love on our own terms rather than God's terms. And, and this makes our understanding of love kind of sappy, uh, maybe a little hokey, perhaps a little romantic in the kind of Meg Ryan, right, Tom Hanks sort of way. And all of that is floating around in our minds as we hear the word love. But that's not the kind of love that Peter is talking about. For Peter... Love is transformative. As Martin Luther King said, it's it's, it's redemptive. For Peter, what we're going to see is love is actually holy. It's a godly thing. And in just one verse, I want you to notice something here. Peter actually uses two different Greek words for the word love. Now, usually I don't go into the original Greek a lot when I preach. A lot of times when we do that, just a little tip. We just want you to see how smart we are. Look at us. We know Greek. You don't. And isn't that neat? But, but I, this is actually important this time. Two different Greek words for the word love. The first word that Peter uses is philia. And actually, the exact word that he uses is Philadelphia, just like the city. So, so really what he says, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere Philadelphia. Now, you can do Greek, too. Because if you know what Philadelphia is as a city, what's its motto? The city of brotherly love. And that is exactly what Philadelphia means. In other words, Peter is calling us to a sincere brotherly love, or if I was just going to use one word for it, a sincere friendship. Peter is calling us to a sincere friendship. And and before you stop and you say, okay, all right, Paul, I guess we're just supposed to all join hands, right? Sing Kumbaya and all be friends. I want you to think about how divided 
our country is right now. The kind of animosity and hostility that we are facing. Divided racially and politically and morally. And so in a world that is fractured and antagonistic, in a world that has become isolated and individualistic, I would argue that friendship is radical. I would go so far to say that friendship is countercultural. And that is what Peter is calling us to. Because it was just as antagonistic in his day as well. This was true for his world and it was also true in his life. And we're going to see this in a second. But the second word that Peter uses, the first, Philadelphia, friendship. The second, the word agape. Now agape is a sacrificial love. It's the kind of love that Martin Luther King talked about. Redemptive love, sacrificial love. It's the kind of love, honestly, that Jesus talked about and even embodied when he laid his life down on the cross for us, his friends. And so Peter, what Peter is calling for, he is calling for a radical friendship that is characterized by sacrificial love. That's the kind of love that Peter is calling for. It's the kind of love that we can't just do on our own. We can't just think enough about it and just lay our life down for other people. No, the only way that you can truly love like that is if you know the love of God for you. That he is the one who laid his life down for you. And out of that love, now you are called to love one another. But if you stop and think about the way that God loves you, a sinner, unlovable, and yet he loves you, he loves you to the point of death, even death on a cross, then the call to love like that, if we're going to be honest, is pretty hard, isn't it? It's hard. It's going to require a lot of us. And it was hard for Peter as well. We see this in the story of Peter and Cornelius. Acts 11 verse 1, we're told that word reached Jerusalem that Peter had done the unthinkable. Peter ate with a Gentile. And not only that, but he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And this was scandalous. This was scandalous. It was scandalous because in those days, Jews and Gentiles had no business to be together at all. And what I want you to understand is this was hatred, this was racism. We're told in verse 2, so Peter went up to Jerusalem and the circumcision party criticized him. Now, who were they? Well, they were Christians who believed that all of the rules and regulations of the Jewish faith had to be continued. And that if you didn't follow those, then you were not holy. In other words, they were defining holiness on their terms. And of all people, the Gentiles had no business being around the holiness of a man like Peter. So they criticized him for it. Here they're hearing word that somebody has come to faith in Jesus Christ. And are they happy? No. They're furious. They're furious. They're furious because deep down they were filled with hatred and bigotry. Racism. John Stott said it this way, just to help you understand. It's difficult, he says, for us to understand the impassable gulf that existed between Jews and Gentiles. By choosing and blessing the Jews, God intended to bless the families of the whole earth. The tragedy is that Israel twisted the doctrine of election 
into one of favoritism. And they, beca- they became filled with racial pride and hatred. And so here's Peter, who's grown up with all of this, filled with racial pride and hatred. And God commands him to think about holiness differently. Verse 4, Acts 11, verse 4, it says that Peter began and he explained to them in this order. This is what he says. He says, I was in the city of Joppa, and in a trance I saw a vision. And in this vision a great sheet descended And looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. In other words, God sends a vision to Peter and says, listen, holiness is my call. I decide what holiness is. You don't. And no amount of eating the right things or not eating the wrong things is going to make you holy, Peter. And so I'm going to completely blow your world up. I'm actually going to command you to go and eat something that you think is unholy. God sends Peter a vision to teach him about what holiness really is. Not something that we can do ourselves, but something that God does for us. And this completely upended Peter's world, the way that he thought about himself and the way he thought about Gentiles, the unclean ones, the unholy ones. But I want you to notice something. This hatred in Peter was so deep that God had to send a vision to him three times. And it was so deep that Peter never really shook it. We're told actually in the book of Galatians that years later, Peter came to Antioch and Paul comes to him and Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Apostolic smackdown, right? Paul versus Peter. And Paul's getting in Peter's face and he is saying, you are condemned. Why? Paul says, for certain men came from James and Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Same guys. And the rest of the Jews, Paul says, acted hypocritically. In other words, here's Peter later in his life spending some time with the Gentiles, and then when the circumcision party comes around again, he's afraid. And so he separates himself from those unholy people once again. Paul goes on, and Paul says that this is so wrong and so backwards that he says it was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, for Paul, this kind of bigotry, this kind of condemnation, this kind of self-righteousness to the point of judging somebody else is not just wrong, it's unholy. It's unholy. It's contrary to the gospel itself. And so in his letter, Peter, he goes on and he says, listen, you not only have to love from a pure heart, a truly holy heart, but you need to love Because you have been born again. Now, what does love have to do with being born again? I want to suggest two things to you. The first is that we have been born again as individuals, right? We have been crucified with Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Peter says this in the beginning of his letter, verse 3, he says, We have been born again to a living hope. In other words, you are different. You have been changed, you have been transformed. You have been called to live a holy life. You've been given a new identity. You are no longer identified 
by your past life of sin. That is not who you are anymore. And so there's an aspect of what Peter is saying is that, listen, you are called to love because now you've been born again. And and by God's holiness in you, he has given you the power to love. He's given you the power to love. That's one aspect of it. But another aspect is this, that you have been born again, not just as individuals, but there is a corporate reality to you being born again. What do I mean by that? You have been born again into a new family. You have been born into the family of God. You've been born into the church. And what that means is now, if you've been born into this family, you are now called to love the other family members, no matter how odd they might be. That is your calling now. You have a new family, a new corporate identity, and your identity as a Christian now overrules every other identity that you might characterize yourself by. So before you are black, before you are white, before you are rich or poor, American or Japanese, before you are a Texan or a Yankee New Yorker, right? Before you are a Republican or Democrat, you are Christ's. That is your primary identity, and it influences every single other thing that you do and say. It influences who you are, how you spend your money, the way that you work. It influences the way that you vote. How you think about your identity of as a Christian radically transforms everything. And I think this is what Peter is getting at, because it changed the way he thought of himself as well. Peter was a Jewish fisherman. And we know that when he followed Jesus Christ, he left his nets there in Galilee. But he didn't just stop fishing. No, actually, fishing became a teaching tool in his life. It influenced the way that he fished. But also changed how he thought of himself as Jewish. It changed his national identity as well. Acts 11 again, verse 10. We're told that Peter has this vision of the sheet and these animals rise, kill, and eat. This vision comes to him three times. And after the third time, three Gentiles show up at his door, sent to him from Caesarea. And they're sent by a man named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a Roman centurion, so he had two strikes against him. Okay? Not only was he a Gentile, but he was a Roman Gentile. This is someone Peter had no business being around. We're told in verse 12 that the Holy Spirit told Peter to go with them. And then the Holy Spirit told Peter this, make no distinction. Peter, you do not get to decide what holiness is. I do. Do not think that you are holy and this man Cornelius is not because of what you do or what you eat or where you come from. Make no distinction. Peter recognized that the gospel completely upended and overruled his Jewish pride and his racism. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We are called to love because we have been born again into a new family, a new covenant family of God. And this changes Everything, especially the way we're called to love one another. 
just after the police shootings this summer, Pastor Mark and I had the privilege of coming together with about 100 other pastors from our city that transcended racial and denominational lines for the sake of the gospel to answer how are we as a city going to respond to this kind of tragedy? White, black, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Anglican, Episcopalian, all seeking to love one another and to love our city for the sake of Jesus Christ. We are called to love because we have been born again. And that love transcends every kind of identity marker that you could think of. And so as we end, the last thing that I want you to see from Peter is this, that we are called to love through the living and abiding word of God. He says this in verse 24, all flesh is like grass, the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Peter says that the word of God is living and abiding. It's living and abiding in us. We have been entrusted with the gospel of grace. That God sent his word to us and there is nothing else that lasts. I want you to think about that. Think of all the things that we pursue as people. Beauty does not last. Health does not last. Power does not last. Wealth does not last. There is nothing that we live for that lasts except for one thing, Peter says. The living and abiding word of God. And that word, Peter says, is the good news. It's the gospel. That's what gospel means. It's good news. And it is good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is this. That God loved you and me so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to step into our unholiness to take on our sin, to die on the cross as a sacrifice for sin and to rise again that all who believe in him might have eternal life. Do you know that good news? Have you received that good news? Have you trusted in that good news or are you trusting in yourself for one of these other things that we so often chase? This is the living and abiding word in us, but it also abides through us. We see this at the end of our passage in the book of Acts. Verse 13, we're told that Peter goes to the house of Cornelius. He enters into the house of Gentiles. It's his first radical step. But then he does something even more radical. He preaches the good news of Jesus Christ to a man who was his enemy. A man who he was taught to hate. And the Holy Spirit changes this man Cornelius' heart and he becomes a Christian. Peter crossed racial, religious boundaries to enter into this man's house and to offer him the holy love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter shared the good news with a bunch of Gentiles, his own enemies. Why? Because he was compelled by the holy love of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more loving than to share the gospel. There's nothing more loving. And even more so to share the gospel with people that you have nothing in common with and no business being around. As Spurgeon said, if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep the good news to yourself. So as we end, I wonder, 
Who is your Cornelius? Who is that person that you think has no business being with us in a church like this? Who are those people that you deem as unworthy, unholy, not good enough? Because it's easy to think that we're a lot like Peter, isn't it? That we're the Peter in the story, that we need to learn what love really is. We need to learn to love one another, and we need to learn to love our enemies. But as we end, I want you to know this. We are not Peter. That's not who we are in the story. You see, we're Cornelius. We're the Gentile. We're the enemies of God. We are the unclean ones. We are the unholy ones who God has invited into his house in order to be redeemed by his own blood. Jesus Christ died while we were enemies and he made his enemies by his love his friends. And as his friends, made holy by the precious blood of our Redeemer, he is now calling us to love others in the same way that he has loved us. That as we are loved, we are called to share the holy love of Jesus Christ in a hostile world, not for our glory, but for his. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have invited a bunch of Gentile sinners like us into your home. Thank you that you have defined holiness on your standards much higher than we could ever attain to. And that in your holiness, you stooped down into our wretchedness. You took on flesh in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, and you nailed our unholiness to the cross. And by his blood, we've been called holy. Thank you for loving us that much. We pray now, Father, that you would equip and enable us to boldly proclaim that love to a dying world, that we would love one another first and foremost, but we would also love our enemies for Jesus' sake. Amen.